Good evening. Greetings in Jesus' name to each one. It's good to be here again and worship with the flock that meets at Maywell Memorial. So, now just thinking how blessed we are to be able to be here, to have health and strength that we can face another year, and that we can serve the Lord again. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that thou visiteth him? The psalmist said, well, as Davy's already mentioned, or asked, the, the title of the sermon tonight that I've chosen is Be Thou Faithful. And this evening, we stand on the threshold of a new year, a new beginning, a new opportunity. And I wonder what type, what feelings, what emotions do you experience when you turn that calendar page from January 31 December 31 to January 1, and you began a new year, a new opportunity. Now, I realize the Scripture says that God's mercies are new every morning, so every day is an opportunity. But there's something about a new year that does inspire us to reflect and aspire to new things in the coming year. And this year, my thoughts have been to a large degree, influenced by two things. One, that is the series of Sunday school lessons that we've been having from the book of Revelation. And second, my personal Bible reading uh, in First and Second Corinthians. You know, in Second Corinthians, there's somewhat of a seesaw effect of Israel walking with the Lord and falling away and coming back and falling away. In fact, there's points where I'm reading along and I'm reading about the king and he turned his heart to the Lord and he destroyed the idols and, and things are looking up. And, and I want to stop reading there because I know within another chapter or two, there'll be another king that comes along and does just the opposite. Or that king will become prosperous and fall away. So that's been influencing my thinking. And then our, our Sunday school lessons from Revelation and so while I'm certainly in favor of aspiring to, to greater service and new heights in the coming year, I've become to realize how important it is to maintain the ground that we've already gained. How often do we think about that? Maintaining the ground that we've already gained. And I challenge you, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Let's start at chapter 2. And notice what the Lord Jesus has to say uh, as He... Uh, communicates to us through uh, John in the book of Revelation about the importance of maintaining what we have already acquired, what we've already experienced, what we've already been blessed with. Revelation 2, verses 2 through 5 to begin. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, which thou, that, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And is born as patience for my namesake, and has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Think a bit about this church. He said, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patient endurance. And I know that you will not tolerate sinful people, which are evil. You've tried them, and you you determine who are true apostles and who are not, and and you, you take care of those things. 
and says, Thou hast born, you have perseverance. And for my name's sake you have labored, and you have not fainted. They were faithful believers. They were putting their best foot forward. They were keeping their hand to the plow. They were serious about purging sin out of the church and working and laboring. But he said, I have something to say to you. I have something against you. You have left your first love. In all of their work, in all their activity, in all their effort to keep sin out of the church, they somehow had grown cold in their fervency and their love for the Lord, and possibly even for each other, because our love for the Lord is directly reflected in our interpersonal relationships, as we'll pick up a bit later in the message. So, the first challenge in our activity, are we maintaining our fervent love for the Lord and for His body, the church? The second church we'll look at is in verse 13. Verses 13 and verses 14. And this is a church of Pergamum. And he says, And I know thy works where thou dwellest, and where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast to my name, thou hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But, so here was another faithful, active group. They were taking a stand against sin. They were taking a stand against Satan. And it would appear that they were even faithful in the face of martyrdom and persecution in their midst. But he says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And he goes on to talk to them also about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which he hates. So here again was a church that appeared to be faithful, but underneath, maybe in secret, there was immorality, there was impurity in the church. And in verse 16, he says, repent or else. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I hadn't thought about that much before this afternoon when I was reviewing these passages. Sometimes you may look at your children and say, you'd better stop that or else. The Lord Jesus said that. You'd better stop or else. There are going to be consequences. Verses 19 and 20. Now we're moving to the church of Thyatira. I know thy works in charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works, and the last is more than the first. I believe this is a church that made New Year's resolutions. He said, you're doing more now than you did when you first believed. See, there was a church who was doing less. They had less love than they first believed. This church is doing more. They were keeping their New Year's resolutions. Their works, their love, their service, their faith, their patient endurance. Patience here in the King James Journal is translated patient endurance in other translations. And the works and how they were more active in serving the Lord than they were at the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols." In the midst of all their work and activity and their faithfulness and their amping up their activity, here again was a church that maybe, maybe under the scenes, maybe it wasn't known, 
There was immorality. There's a lack of purity again in this church. Talks about this wicked woman and maybe not actually a Jezebel, but a reflection on the Jezebel who was the wife of Ahab. She called herself a prophetess and they allowed her to teach and to seduce her, the servants there in the church to immorality and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. He goes on to talk about he gave her space to repent, but she had not. Verse 25. But they which have already, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And the verses in between there, he challenged them about some other things. And he says, he's the one that searches the hearts and he gives to everyone according to their works. But he challenged them here in verse 25. And I find it a challenge to me. There was problems and there were things they needed to repent of. There were things they needed to change. But he leaves them this other challenge in verse 25. He says, hold fast to what you already have. Don't lose what you have, but work on the things that you need to add and take care of. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Church of Sardis. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He begins by challenging this church to be watchful to strengthen the things that remained that are ready to die. He said, you're not perfect. You're not fulfilling all that you ought to. But I challenge you, hang on to what you do have and strengthen that and build and grow. Just like he challenged the church previous to this we just looked at. Be watchful, strengthen, hold fast. There are a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out of his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We had instruction class this morning. We had good discussion on some of these very things. Michelle, are you here somewhere? Yes. We had good discussion on the book of life and, and the books and what takes place when the Lord returns and the resurrection and we didn't get it all figured out, and probably you haven't either. But anyhow, we had a discussion on this about when is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And what happens if you go back in intentional sin? We don't know for sure, but he said that if you overcome, you'll be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name out of the Book of Life. Which would indicate to me that it is possible for God to blot our name out of the book of life when we go back into sin and refuse to repent when the Holy Spirit brings conviction and our conscience brings conviction into our lives. And I was thinking again as I was studying this afternoon, I wonder what someone who embraces unconditional eternal security does with the first two, three chapters of the book of Revelation and all these challenges to the church. I wonder what they do with that. What do you think, Brother Ben? <laughs> I don't know. It'd be awfully hard to uh, argue against what we find here. Let's move on to chapter three and verse fourteen. 
And to the church and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen and the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, nor you are neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel to thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. And to him that overcometh, I will grant to set with me on my throne, even as I have over, also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Beware of success. In fact, right after Dave, he called me, I was thinking his thoughts, and I was I almost titled the message, Beware of Success, and just made a sermon on the dangers of being successful by human standards, successful by the American dream standards. Here was a church that was very successful financially, but there wasn't really anything good to say about their spiritual life. It doesn't really commend them for anything. He says they're rich, they're increased with goods, and you have need of nothing, but in reality they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And he counsels them to come and buy true riches from him and anoint their eyes with eye save. And my understanding is from history that that uh, area was famous, or that city was famous for making eye save. And he hit them right between the eyes, so to speak, and he says, you really need spiritual eye save. So as you can see. But he extends love. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He's offering them a way back into his presence. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. He's offering them sweet relationship. And he said, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I'm set down with my father in his throne. And he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He's speaking to us. And I like to spend a bit of time thinking about the challenge to this church. They said, we have need of nothing. And Jesus said, you have need of everything. Statistics would suggest that more people lose out in their walk with the Lord in the Middle Age period than any other time. I'm not referring to those who blatantly just turn their back and say, I'm done with Christianity, I'm done with the Lord, I'm walking away. But the idea of just slowly growing cold and drifting away. Anyone who's walked with the Lord whose obedience to Scriptures is not what it was when they first believed. Losing their first, leaving their first love. And I'm not suggesting that youth and old age are a time of less temptation. And I'm thankful that we recognize that. We put special effort into programs to help our youth to deal with temptation and to encourage them. And I understand older folks talk about the temptations that come into their life, temptations of doubt and, and things like that. But it seems that the tactics that Satan uses on middle-aged people can be more subtle 
and appear more harmless on the surface and therefore can be quite effective in drawing us away from the Lord in the middle period of our life. That is when more people grow lukewarm in their commitment. It's when more people begin to accept and tolerate things that the Scripture clearly forbids. It's when more Christians lose their love for the church and for each other and begin to fight and to bicker and to divide. And I've been thinking about this. I don't know what your response would be. Have you ever heard of a church division because the youth decide they weren't going to get along with each other? Is that where it generally starts? It does generally start up front here and kind of work its way back through the church. Something to think about. Briefly, let's think about several men and women in the New Testament, in the Bible, New and Old Testament. Samson. While Samson walked with the Lord, he was invincible, even though throughout his life there was questionable activities. But when he walked with the Lord, he was invincible. When he became lax and careless, he lost his hair, his eyes, and eventually his life. Saul. When God called him to serve as Israel's king, it says he was he was obviously quite a man to behold. He was a handsome man. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. And when they came to get him and anoint him king, they couldn't find him. He was hiding amongst the stuff and the luggage. He was a shy man. He was an humble man. But as time passed, he became successful. <clears throat> he became well-to-do. He became respected. And his desire to be well-respected and looked up to in the eyes of the people, surpassed his commitment to following the Lord, and he disobeyed. He offered sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel to come. When Samuel rebuked him for what he'd done, he had this discourse with Samuel. It's interesting, we won't go there, but he, he wanted Samuel to go back with him so he would still look good in the eyes of the people. He lost out. He became a bitter and jealous and angry man. And right on his heels came David, the young shepherd boy, who was the source of, uh, who was the recipient of Saul's anger and, and jealousy. And here comes David, a man after God's own heart, a young shepherd boy who walked close to God, a young man who killed a bear and a lion and a giant named Goliath in the name of the Lord. He challenged that giant. He said, you come to me in the name of your gods, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of God of Israel. David was a man committed to walking with the Lord. The same man who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David had to flee from the presence of Saul. He had to run for his life. And during that time, he grew very close to the Lord. He wrote many of his Psalms during that time. Psalms of praise, psalms of commitment, psalms of surrender, and full dependence upon the Lord. But then David became king of Israel. He enjoyed years of unbroken success. What happened then? He became lax. When the army went out to fight, he stayed back on the rooftop. And he started looking around. And he took a woman who was not his wife. And then he set up a series of events to try to cover up, and that didn't work. And then he set up another series of events to take Uriah's life. Although David repented and was forgiven, his life was never the same. God told him, he said, the sword will never depart out of your house, and it didn't. 
Solomon then comes on the hills of David. He was a man who started out small in his own eyes. He offered a beautiful prayer to the Lord there at the dedication of the temple. And also again when he was called, when he became king and was called to lead. And he said, who am I to lead this so great a people as yours? And he asked for wisdom and God blessed him and gave him wisdom. And I'm not sure why, but God gave him riches to go with it and a lot of other things. And it wasn't long what happened. He became well-to-do. He experienced unparalleled success, unparalleled wisdom and control of the, of the known world at that time. All that affluence eventually led to his ruin. Solomon started out right, but fell hard in midlife. Elijah. Elijah is introduced to us in 1 Kings 17. We see him as a fearless and dedicated prophet of God. He went to Ahab, declared what would happen. He went and lived in a ravine, was fed by ravens. Following that, he stayed with a widow in Zarephath, and continued, she continued to have flour and oil as long as he was there. The widow's son died. Elijah cried out to God. God restored the child to, to life. And when God told Elijah to go back to King Ahab, he went without fear. A lot of tremendous dedication and faith in that man's life to go back to this King Ahab after all those years of drought. And he went back. And that led to a showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And I have here 450, but I actually think there was another 450 prophets of another god. There was, I think it was about 800 actually was slain that day. So there was one man of God standing there with their altars. And he said, the God who sends fire was the God that you should serve. And the people said, it's well spoken. We'll do it. And he stood there, and not only did he stand there fiercely, he, he taunted those other prophets as they danced around. He said, well, maybe your God's sleeping, or maybe he's doing this, or maybe he's doing that. And then he repaired the altar, poured, had them pour water around it, and called on God, and the fire came down. And he helped slay the prophets of Baal, and the other prophets as well. Elijah and God won a great victory that day. And then he ran all the way back in the strength of the Lord to the town. What happened the next day? When he heard that Jezebel had set her heart on taking his life, he became discouraged. He didn't fall into sin. He became discouraged. Right in the middle of his ministry, right after God had worked tremendous miracles, and he was there as part of that, we find him in the midst and the height of his ministry, running and wishing he could die. Saying, God, what, what use is it? What use is it? Nehemiah and his helpers started rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Things were going well until they reached the halfway point. Opposition arose, and the workers became discouraged. But Nehemiah, the great godly man that he was, he roused them up, and they kept working. A list of individuals who lost out with God could go on. Judas... Peter. Thankfully, there were numbers like Peter and David who, re who repented and returned to the Lord and became strong and continued to walk. But there are also many like Saul who got caught in, sa in Satan's web and never regained their spiritual footing and died spiritually and physically. Let's consider some of the things that caused these men to fall in midlife. 
and do a bit of personal inventory in our own lives as well. Someone has said that for too many Christians, their walk with the Lord is a little bit like the telephone lines. Starts out good, sags in the middle, and in the end of life, climbs back up a little. And I hope that's not our experience. But it does happen. It should not. We need to continue going up, 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 and not sagging as we go. Samson was a Nazarite, which means to some degree he lived a disciplined life as a youth. But Samson had unchecked passions in his life. And you know what they were, and you know what it cost him. How are we doing? Do we have unchecked passions in our lives? Saul started out small in his own eyes. When he was blessed with power and authority, he quickly became self-centered and disobeyed God and eventually committed suicide. David, how could this great man fall so hard when he'd walked so close with God and had so much going for him? Again, there's more danger in success than in adversity. While David was running from from Saul, he stayed close to God. When he was blessed with affluence and security, Satan was able to lull him and to get him to fall. In America, many people enjoy great affluence and security by midlife. But what do we have to show for it as a society? The average marriage in the United States lasts seven years. And you couple that with the fact that the age of people getting married is getting Older. People are waiting till later in life to get married. So people are getting married in their upper 20s and 30s. And average marriage lasts seven years. So the marriages are, dis- are falling apart. Divorces are taking place in midlife for many people. Children raised in a traditional two-parent home are now a minority. A major minority. And the sad part is that marriage statistics between the churched and the unchurched are very little, there's very little difference. Solomon, like Samson, had unchecked passions in his life. His many wives led him astray. Samson, excuse me, Solomon had another passion that led to his downfall, and that was his desire for wealth. And his wealth became a snare unto him. Scripture tells us that they that will be rich fall into a snare and a temptation. Many snares and temptations. And if you're trapping, if any of you are trappers, and if an animal falls into your snare, what's the end result? Generally, death. Snare and a temptation. Pierce themselves through with many griefs. I'm not sure where this saying came from. Riches. There's a burden and a care in getting them. There's a fear in keeping them. There's a temptation in using them. There's a sorrow in losing them. An account must be given concerning them. Riches are temporary, uncertain, unsatisfying, corruptible, fleeting, deceitful, can be stolen, are perishable, choke the word, leads to pride, causes us to deny, forget, forsake, and rebel against God, causes self-sufficiency, and leads to lukewarmness. But we like them. We go after them. But this is what they will do to us. They're not surrendered to God completely. Elijah is a man many of us can identify with. He did not fall into sensual sin and indulgences, but he experienced discouragement and disillusionment and was ready to give up in the height of his ministry. Many times a spiritual low will follow a spiritual high, and that's what happened in the case of Elijah. He thought, I'm no good. It's no use. I'm the only one trying to live for God. We find that in 1 Kings 19. 
Elijah had somehow stopped trusting in the Lord and started listening to the, to the voice of his own insecurity. And we notice God brought him back to reality. He took him up and God passed and see where there was an earthquake and there was a fire and there was a wind. But then the still small voice, it was a still small voice where God spoke to him. He said, you go back. There's 7,000 haven't bowed the knee. And there's Jehu, and there's this person, and there's that person. They're waiting for you to come back. And Elijah found his way back to God and back to serving faithfully. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 86. And look at a number of verses that I believe can keep us from failing as some of these people failed. Psalm 86. I'm going to drop in the middle of this psalm, verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, and with all my heart I will glorify thy name forevermore. Here we see a necessity for spiritual growth and renewal, a teachable spirit. David writes here, he says, Teach me, O Lord, thy way. Or teach me thy way, O Lord. So he's open to the Lord's leading. He says, teach me. I want to grow. I will walk a commitment. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I like, the la- I like that entire verse, but I really like that last phrase. Unite my heart to fear thy name. What does that mean? Another translation puts it this way. Give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart. We need an undivided heart. We need an undivided loyalty to the Lord to walk with him. And then we can say, teach me thy way and I will walk in it. And out of a teachable spirit, walking with the Lord, an undivided heart, comes verse 12. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. See, now the heart's united. It's one. It's undivided. With his whole heart, he said, I will praise the Lord, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me. Thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell, remembering what God has done for us should inspire us to serve him without reservation. O God, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of the violent man have sought after my soul, and I have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Many hundreds of years later, As John was given a revelation and he wrote it down for us, we find the same thing. A God full of compassion and graciousness and long-suffering and plenteous in mercy. Where he invites us to come back in in the book of Revelation. He invites those churches who have grown weak, those who have fallen away, those who have begun tolerating sin. He invites them back. And he said, I will come in and sup with you. I'll have relationship with you. I'll restore you. It's the God we serve. 
O turn unto me and have mercy upon me and give thy strength unto thy servant and save the son of thy handmaid. Show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, O Lord, hast hope in me and comfort me. You've helped me and you have comforted me. What a blessing to have a God like that. So, the first challenge I'd like to leave with us this evening is hold on to what you have. Strengthen that which is good in your life. But don't stop there. Use that as a foundation to build on and to build in our lives. Davy started with Peter. That's where I would like to conclude. Except I'm going to 2 Peter. Chapter 1 and verse 3. There are a number of math terms in this first chapter I'd like for us to pay attention to. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Have you ever thought about the multiplication of grace and peace in our lives? So as it relates to God here, it refers to being multiplied or in abundance. But as we go down through and it talks about our efforts, we see addition. Let's move on. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. <clears throat> what do we lack tonight, spiritually, as far as what's available to us? Anything? It says, he is, through His divine power, hath given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Hereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Partakers of the divine nature. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And I'll stop there. John, you like math. When you're adding, do you throw away the base number you started with? You need to keep that in when you start adding. You keep it in, right? Yeah. <laughs> Carry it along. And that's a challenge I want for us to, to take home tonight. Don't lose what you already have in your effort to gain something else. God wants us to gain more. But God wants us to keep what we already have and to hang on to it and to build on it, and to be faithful in it, what He has given us. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. That's quite a list of additions. We keep adding and adding. Not throwing out the previous one, but adding to it. Why? 
verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a God who gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And through the work of Jesus Christ and indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are, we are privileged to become partakers of the divine nature. And now he tells us to add, to cultivate these things in our life. In our life. And he says, if these things have in you and abound, they will make you that you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful. You'll produce fruit. Your life will be evidence. Your life will give evidence of God working in you and the presence of the divine nature and the grace and peace and the knowledge of God in our lives. But, verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. To remind you the Laodicea in church, they thought they had all these things. And he said, no, you don't have any of them. You can't even see. You don't understand. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Again, calling us back to remembrance of what we were purged from and that first love and fervency and, and keeping it and building on it. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. To be diligent in our calling and to, to keep our election secure. We will never fall if we do these things. For so an entrance shall be administered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As you look at that last verse we just that I just read, we just looked at together. Do you see a person who's just just barely getting into the kingdom, just barely making it? Or do you see someone who's granted an abundant entrance? into the presence of Jesus Christ at the end of this life. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another translation say, and you shall receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust that is the goal and the, the focus of each of our lives tonight to faithfully serve the Lord, to do what we know, not to lose what we already experienced, but to build on it and build on it and add these virtues through the work of the Spirit in our life, in our lives. Because he said, if you do this, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in this life. And at the end of this life, we can experience a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to you and to your new year.